So I'm Kiri Kenkwende. I'm from Media Diversified, um, an organization that's working to diversify the media. Um, we, unfortunately, one of my colleagues, Samantha Asamadu, our editor-in-chief and founder, can't join us today, and she sends her apologies. But we do have a fantastic panel here to discuss um, today's topic. We'll be looking at whether in an age of anti-establishment thinking in all areas, including politics, media, sport, and religion, the process of overthrowing elites and creating new ones in business, for example, Google and Facebook is speeding up, whether that makes for a period of greater freedom to question aspects of society, or whether it creates dangers, such as the rise of populist figures who present themselves as established anti-establishment figures. So it's quite a wide and ranging topic, and we've got a fantastic panel. Um, we're joined, first of all, here from John Norton, a senior research fellow in the Center of, for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities, where he is a principal investigator on two research projects, the Leverhulme-funded project on conspiracy and democracy, and a philanthropically-funded project on technology and democracy. He is also director of the Press Fellowship Program at Wolfson College, the technology columnist of the Observer newspaper, and emeritus professor of the public understanding of technology at the Open University. His most recent book, From Gutenberg to Zuckerberg, What You Really Need to Know About the Internet, is published by Quirkus Books. We also have with us Kieran O'Hara, Principal Research Fellow in Electronics and Computer Science at the University of Southampton, where he researches privacy, trust, and cybersecurity, particularly with respect to the World Wide Web. He has advised the Cabinet Office, the Ministry of Justice, and the Home Office on data policy, including the publication of open government data and the ethics of data sharing across the government. He also researches on political history and philosophy, particularly of conservatism and the Conservative Party, and is a research fellow of the Center for Policy Studies. He has a number of books, um, including The Spy in the Coffee Pot, The End of Privacy as We Know It, and The Enlightenment, A Beginner's Guide after Blair. Sorry, The Enlightenment, A Beginner's Guide. We um, will then hear from Beatrix Campbell. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading this off my phone because I forgot my notes. <laughs> we also hear from Beatrix Campbell, a writer, journalist, and broadcaster, as well as a playwright. She's a Green Party parliamentary candidate for Hampstead and Kilburn and a Green Party candidate for Camden Council. A provocative and influential feminist, she was active in the women's liberation movement, a founder of Red Rag, a Marxist and feminist journal, and was awarded an OBE in 2009 for services to equality. She has worked for The Morning Star, formerly The Daily Worker, and Marxism Today, writes regularly for The Guardian, and is a member of the Free Communications Group that published Open Secret and campaigned against monopoly ownership of the mass media. She is an award-winning um, um, panelist here, having won the Cheltenham Festival Literary Prize, the Fawcett Prize, and several honorary doctorates. So that's our wonderful panel. We'll be hearing from John first. Thank you. Thank you very much, and good morning, folks. Um, I've been reading, as most of you will have been, um, with, with mounting uh, incredulity and horror, um, what's been happening in the United States, uh, and, and indeed, of course, what has happened uh, to this supposedly mature and stable democracy over the last few months. Um, and if you look at the, at the media coverage of it, what, what you're seeing is a lot of guff, 
about uh, the revolt against something called the liberal establishment. And I'm looking at this and thinking, uh, what are these people smoking exactly? <laughs> I don't see a liberal establishment. I see a neoliberal establishment. And that's what I want to talk about. Now, um, so, so the first thing I want to, I want to address is, is a question that uh, we, we academics normally try and avoid because um, it's the kind of stuff that uh, wrinkles people's noses. It's, it's about ideology. And ideology, as you know, is a contested concept. Um, but I've got a working definition of it, which works for me, which is that ideology is, determined, is what determines how you're thinking when you don't know you're thinking. Uh, and it first came to mind a few years ago at the planning of the uh, Olympics, just before the Olympics opened in London. And I remember driving past the Olympic uh, Park at somewhere between 5 and 6 p.m. in, in the evening. And that day there was, had been a huge scandal in, in Britain. Uh, it was at one of the privatised, one of the big private security companies, I can't remember whether it was G4S or, or, or the other one, Serco, um, it had been discovered that for some years uh, this company had charged the government, the Home Office, uh, colossal amounts of money in the millions of pounds uh, for electronic tagging of people. And it turns out that many of the people for whom they charged were either dead or in prison. You may remember it. It's a colossal scandal. And, uh, and Francis Maud, who was then the minister in the, in, in, the, in the Cabinet Office, who must have been responsible for this stuff, or perhaps he was the only minister in Whitehall who was willing to talk to PM about it. But in any event, he was interviewed by Eddie Mayer. And, and they talked about this, and Francis Maud said, it's a terrible scandal. We will investigate it fully, and, and, and if, if wrongdoing is indeed established, then we will take the relevant action and the rest of it. And then Eddie said to him something like this. I see that in the next round of uh, tenders for uh, security work for the Home Office and the Prison Service um, that this company, the company that was in the, in the frame, is listed as one of the preferred bidders. I take it that that will stop. And Francis Maud said, oh, oh no, that would be unthinkable. And at that point, I kind of realised the grip that a way of thinking, a mindset has on our ruling elites. And, and then I started to, one st tends to reflect on that and then think, well, how did we get here? How did we get here where it becomes unthinkable um, to, to not to delist um, a company that's clearly engaged in criminal behavior? Um, and if you want to trace it back, you have to go back to, to, to the immediate post-war years. You have to go back to Hayek. Um, and a number of other thinkers, and in particular to an article that Hayek wrote in 1949, The Intellectuals and Socialism was the title, in which he reflected on how it was that the Fabian Society and other left-wing organisations had, in the early years of the, of the uh, 20th century, managed to somehow capture the high ground of policymaking and political thinking and the rest of it. And uh, the, main, the, main, the main point of this was that Hayek observed, quite rightly, that ideas seep into the political bloodstream quite slowly. And so his project and the project of those who, who, who agreed with him was that they had to do the same for a particular way of looking at things which was uh, different. Um, and in particular, he said, I think in the article, he said that one of the things you have to capture, one of the roots you have to capture, what he called 
second-hand dealers in ideas, by which he meant, by the way, academics. <laughs> he meant also think, think tanks and that kind of stuff. And of course, that, that project ha has worked. Um, uh, it worked over, 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 since the 70s, it has worked. Um, and we saw it first in, 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 for example, in the late Harold Wilson's administration, uh, in James Callan's administration, and of course in the administration of Jimmy Carter in the United States. And then it was given a turbo boost by our own Margaret Thatcher and by Ronald Reagan, that sainted Republican, uh, in the United States. And then it reached its full apotheosis in this country uh, in, in, uh, in New Labour uh, with uh, Blair and Mandelson, and in the United States, of course, with, um, with, with uh, the first President Clinton. Uh, so what happened? What happened? More or less, as we, as we failed to notice, was that um, neoliberal ideas about individual liberty, about the importance of free markets and deregulation, were translated into electorally successful programs from the 1980s and beyond. Um, and in that sense, uh, we have had, for many years, most of us in this room have lived under what I would call a neoliberal establishment, uh, not a liberal one. Now, I also know that neoliberalism is used and misused in innumerable ways. And it is, for example, for many people, especially on the left, it's a general purpose term of abuse, like paedophile. Um, for more detached observers, um, it is actually what philosophers call an essentially contested concept. So I think that when anybody like me uses it in discussion, they ought to be obliged to say what they mean by the term. And here's what I mean by it. It's an ideology that holds that human well-being can best be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets, and free trade. Now, what that implies is uh, an attenuated role for the state. Uh, the role of the state in this general ideological framework is to create and preserve the institutional framework needed for all that stuff. Uh, and, and if markets do not exist uh, in important areas, for example, health, social security, water, education, environmental pollution, and other public goods like that, then markets should be created by state action. Otherwise, as we might say in Ireland, the state should butt out. Now, that's, that's the establishment thinking under which we are live and on which we have been living. And because I study the implications of digital technology for all of this, um, my question here is, where does digital technology fit into this? And the answer, alas, is that it fits in in all kinds of ways, but not in any obvious and simple, uh, and simple way. On the one hand, digital technology, as it has evolved in the hands of the giant corporations which now control it, has been a colossal enabler of neoliberal policies and ideologies. Uh, and ideology. For example, the globalization project against which we are now seeing such a populist revolt on both sides of the Atlantic and in Europe and elsewhere, it would not be possible without digital technology. You can't outsource production to the other side of the world <coughs> without a technology that enables you to keep track in real time uh, of what's happening over there. Secondly, the companies that dominate the digital world, the, the, the big five, um, um, most of uh, some of the most, uh, most and most of the influential people in the tech industry 
um, subscribe to the belief that basically the state should be relegated to the simple minimalist roles prescribed for it by neoliberal ideology. Uh, If you talk to people in Silicon Valley, as I do, um, and I once played host at Crash some years ago for four days to the the executive chairman of of Google, Eric Schmidt, which was a very interesting experience. It was like getting an intravenous injection of this ideology. Um, You see some strange ironies in this. For example, all of the huge fortunes created by these companies, all of them, all of them, uh, particularly Google and Facebook, um, is all built on the back of a technology that was provided by taxpayers. It's called the Internet. The Internet was not built by private enterprise. It was not invented by private enterprise. It was not created uh, by private enterprise. But all of the fortunes of Silicon Valley are based on that. And yet, at the same time, Silicon Valley is dominated by people who essentially have the idea that the state should just get out of the way and let them get on with it. And they get very upset, of course, when particularly Europeans have the temerity to say that perhaps they should be investigated for antitrust and other kinds of abuses. Thirdly, all of these companies, and indeed the entire industry, are pathologically averse to anything resembling collective action. That's why there are no trade unions in the tech industry. Uh, And, of course, you all know what's happening in what's called now the gig economy, uh, the the way in which Uber uh, and and other other platform-based companies um, employ people while pretending that they're not employees, and so on. Fourthly, the the whole ethos of the tech industry is based around the idea of the heroic individual entrepreneur. This is is the real core of of, of a neoliberal um, uh, ideology. The whole narrative is about the necessity and the desirability of disruptive innovation and of creative destruction, as to use the phrase that Joe Schumpeter coined to describe the waves of innovation that, that, through which capitalism renews itself. Um, there's no, or there's very little consideration of the destructive side of that. Uh, just to give you one example, which many of you will remember, there once was a great Kodak, a company called Kodak. Uh, once Kodak was the dominant, global dominant um, company in in, in photography, in analog photography. Um, the irony is that, that in, in its research lab, some engineers invented digital photography, um, but the people who ran Kodak were unfortunately unable to see what it meant, and in the end, Kodak evaporated. It has ceased to exist, uh, except as a holder of patents. Uh, 144,000 people worked for Kodak worldwide, something like, I think, 66,000 of them based in Rochester, uh, in the state of New York. Um, a visit to Rochester uh, for, for an interested journalist, and not many journalists are that interested, uh, provides a very interesting example of what the destructive bit of the creative destruction wave is like. Um, because these people's pensions, as well as their livelihoods, simply evaporated. Um, and they were destroyed partly by a digital company called uh, Instagram, which at the time, I think, employed 13 people. That's what, that's what this narrative of creative destruction looks like. And fifthly, you have the impact of personalization and filter bubbles and its resonance, as this affects all of us as, as, as tech users, 
Uh, and it, it kind of re resonates, for me at any rate, with Margaret Thatcher's famous observation that there was no such thing as society. There were only individual people and their families. Well, as far as um, Google is concerned, as far as Facebook is concerned, there's just you. And there's an algorithm which makes sure that the stuff you get is tailored exactly for you. Now, of course, there is another side to it. The tech industry, the technology, does facilitate, for example, the coordination of collective action. And there have been some interesting studies of that now, apart from the Arab Spring, which is, which is a separate story in its own not right. Some interesting story, uh, studies about uh, collective action, which suggest that it is possible, of course, to coordinate and make things happen virally and so on. And that does happen a lot, but most, the overwhelming majority of these sort of things that impress uh, journalists and so on, they fizzle out and nothing much happens. They have very little real impact. Um, What's more interesting, but we don't yet understand enough, is the role that, say, social media has played, particularly in the United States, in the rise of Donald Trump. Um, the only thing we can say about Trump with certainty at the moment is that he used to Twitter as Michelangelo was to sculpture. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. So can, can am I audible? Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, that was a great talk. Thanks, John. Um, I anyone. Uh, so I'm also going to talk about uh, this from an ideological point of view. Anyone who has unwrinkled their noses since John sat down and wrinkled them back up again. Um, in the, I, I, I agree entirely that uh, what's under pressure in anti-establishment thinking is a particular set of liberal ideas, uh, and neoliberalism is a strong part of that. Um, what I'm going to do in my talk, first of all, I, I think there are two separate anti-establishment rebellions going on against this common set of ideas. I'm just going to talk about those briefly. Uh, and then uh, I was originally asked to talk about what the political right is doing in response to these anti-establishment moves. And so in the second sort of half of my little spiel, I'll, I'll talk about that. So um, what, what are the ideas... I've got a slightly different characterization of the ideas that are under pressure. I mean, I think there is a liberal ideal of the world that's been in the ascendant for some time, and it is enabled by technology in many ways, as, as John eloquently uh, uh, argued. And this really sees society uh, ideally as being characterised by people with, by, by high connectivity. People are very networked. Everyone's got lots of ties to lots of people. These are probably quite weak ties. They're probably quite transactional ties. They're, they're easy to pick up and easy to drop. You can friend people, you can unfriend people. It's not hard. Um, this kind of view says that ideally we would have a global view, not a local view, parochial view. Uh, and the idea is that this sort of um, philosophy can generate freedom because this is a kind of liberalism and so freedom is at the, the head of this. Um, prosperity um, and tolerance of others. So that's the sort of driving force 
in the establishment ideas. And this is common to, there are two reactions against this, I think. And they're, they're, they're different and need to be treated differently. I'm going to call them, I'm just for the convenience of labels, don't uh, read too much into the labels, but I'm going to call one the metropolitan reaction and the other uh, a provincial reaction. So let's talk about the, the metropolitans. This is an anti-establishment anti group. It's a broadly radical group, which to quite some extent buys into the liberal vision of networked individuals, but it resists details of, of its implementation. So I'm thinking here, many of this type of group's members have just joined the Labour Party. They've lined up behind Jeremy Corbyn. They're going to be associated also with the Green Party or the Occupy movement or Podemos or Syriza or Bernie Sanders. It's that kind of thinking. They feel let down uh, by mainstream politicians. And people in this group tend to bring a different view to politics, uh, the, the, the view of politics that, that basically ran through the 20th century. The 20th century view of politics was we're fa fairly firm ideological base and then we have specific institutions through which we pursue these ideologies political parties parliament trade unions the cbi whatever it might happen to be um, and this is a well understood framework and we all play by the rules and that's the that's the sort of traditional 20th century view of politics and this kind of radical view group this these metropolitan anti-establishment people not enamored with this framework at all they're not keen on parliament, not keen on political parties particularly. Politics is much more a type of self-expression. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way of communicating. It's, it's a thing to communicate. Social media really helps there because uh, social media orient you towards other individuals. They don't orient you towards institutions. Uh, tendency to internationalism rather than parochial. And this group kind of rejecting a lot of specifics of the liberal idea for a number of reasons, and there's not really, you know, there's not a, a, a particular coherent vision here. This is just a group of people brought together, criticising the way that liberalism has been uh, implemented. Uh, they would share many of the uh, views that uh, uh, John expressed just now about neoliberalism. Um, reasons you might want to join this group and reject the the, the, the sort of liberal elite ideas, well. It promises prosperity and it hasn't delivered, certainly since the financial crash. Uh, it's not obvious where growth is going to come from for the next few years. Uh, so you know, this, this dream of prosperity isn't happening. But there are, there are other reasons you might want to uh, become a metropolitan anti-establishment type. Uh, you might think certain groups are disadvantaged by liberalism, women, for example. Uh, and so you might find certain types of identity politics attractive. Uh, you might have environmental concerns. You might think that, that this vision is putting the environment under pressure. You might just hate capitalism. Perfectly reasonable thing to want to do. And the internet's quite important for these metropolitan types in three ways. First of all, it makes uh, political participation very simple. You just click on something. You, re you retweet. It's not hard to do. Secondly, um, the... Uh, since this is a type of self-expression, it's quite handy because the internet renders what you do visible. Right? People can see what you're doing. You can express yourself, and there's an audience, your friends on Facebook, for example. And thirdly, uh, it renders the actions of other people visible to you, so you can see what's trendy and join it, this, and, and join the trend. This is how Corbyn uh, won the Labour Party leadership in 2015, because people could see that it wasn't a wasted vote to vote for Corbyn. 
Um, so that's the uh, that's the, the the metropolitan group. The second group, the second movement. I'm using movement in inverted commas because it's not really a, a, a coherent thing either. It's rooted in a feeling being left behind. This isn't very technologically enabled. I don't think it's self-consciously organised, but it's a group of people who feel very ignored by mainstream politicians. And of course, I'm thinking of the Brexit voters. I'm thinking of uh, Trump supporters, Le Pen, AFD in Germany, UKIP, uh, and the Walloons who trashed the Canadian trade deal uh, yesterday, uh, very much in this group. And they, these people feel vulnerable in open, open economies. And generally speaking, there's kind of a list of things they're opposed to. I've been looking at opinion polls and seeing what they're opposed to. People in this kind of group are opposed to globalisation, free markets, big business, inequality, capitalism, technology and the internet, immigration, multiculturalism, social liberalism, welfare, political correctness, greenery and feminism. Right. So there's virtually everything <laughs> that... <laughs> bien pensant people think <laughs> is opposed. And that makes opposing this group very hard because probably most of us will share at least some of those gripes. We just share different ones. And this second group completely rejects this idea of the networked individual, this liberal ideal. Uh, it's motivated by a much more traditional idea of instead of lots and lots of weak ties, we have a small number of very strong ties to a small number of people. And it's the strength of the ties that are not necessarily chosen and they're not easily removable. And that idea of a rooted community that's actually sort of separated off from an outside world in some... It has boundaries that are, are much less porous than the networks that, uh, of the liberal ideal is, 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 is very attractive uh, to this group. So it's a very local view. Uh, focusing, it doesn't really focus on prosperity. It focuses on identity and belonging and in making the world uh, legible, familiar, comprehensible to people who want to kind of navigate through it. And this desire for fewer, stronger ties is what I read into, into a lot of these similar movements around the world that are rejecting this liberal consensus. Uh, they're rejecting the network individual, rejecting the gig economy that John described, like Uber and stuff, rejecting this constant need to reinvent oneself for new markets. So that's the provincial group. And it's important to note that metropolitans and provincials, they both dislike the same thing, but they also dislike each other possibly more. Right? Uh, I mean, the, I think the, the archetypal event here was the Rochester by-election 2014. Emily Thornbury, one, now one of uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's close associates, uh, tweeted uh, uh, a tweet about white van man and St George flags, going up, dripping with contempt for the people she purported to represent. It was a really key moment, I think, in, in political history there. Um, but we've seen this before. We've seen this you know, in the 80s, for example, when there was a uh, middle-class intellectuals joined the Labour Party and there were huge arguments with the old-style trade unionists. Places like Bermondsey uh, uh, got um, uh, uh, very hairy indeed. But I want to talk about... I was brought here to talk about conservatism and conservatives, so I will move from Labour to Tories and right-wing thinking generally. Just three things I quickly want to say. I'm probably running out of time. Well, the first thing is the right, is, the right generally is, is often associated with establishment thinking. I don't think this is particularly accurate. Um, uh, there's nothing intrinsically establishment about right-wing thinking. Um, you know, Ma uh, Maggie Thatcher, lover or loather, was a very anti-establishment politician in that she couldn't see a cosy establishment without kind of wonging it with her handbag. Um, and as I mean, you know, creative destruction, Schumpeter's already been brought up, this idea of 
free market liberalism is intended to shake things up all the time, which makes it very uncomfortable, actually, for people who, who want to settle in and become a settled node of power. But there are, there are lots of distinct strands of broadly right-wing thought. Not all right-wing thought is, is pro-free market. Uh, one, one type of right-wing thinking that is more congenial, I think, to elites is that of small-c conservatism, which runs from Montaigne in the 16th century to Edmund Burke in the 18th to Michael Oakeshott in the 20th, Roger Scruton nowadays. And this is probably quite interesting to establishment groups certainly opposed to anti-establishment movements because it's all about conservation. It's all about trying to make sure that change is gradual, organic, easy to navigate, rather than revolutionary. Um, but that hasn't really been the dominant theme on the right since Thatcher. Uh, second thing I want to say about right-wing thinking and the anti-establishment is that this kind of small-c conservative philosophy, however, is, is quite interesting in understanding the provincial anti-establishment position. So Roger Scruton uh, criticises liberal thinking and he writes a lot about the importance of strong ties and thinks that one of the aims of politics should be to preserve strong ties, strong institutions. Um, no doubt, you know, liberal philosophies, free markets, very handy for promoting prosperity, but life is about more than economics. There's a lot of people uh, alienated by this networked world, don't feel at home in it, and... Scruton's philosophy, I think, is a very interesting lens through which to view this phenomenon. And the final thing I just want to say is just where the Tory party has been going in response to these two movements that have been attacking a, a liberal world, which the Tory party itself, via Margaret Thatcher, was uh, uh, partly responsible for bringing, to, to bringing about. Um, just switched, as we, as we all know, unless you've been on Mars for the last couple of months, we've all switched from uh, David Cameron to Theresa May, uh, and uh, this has changed the dynamic quite dramatically, quite obviously. Uh, both leaders, I think, were trying to make the party acceptable to one of these two groups. They just switched groups. Cameron's pro project of detoxifying the Tory brand, uh, which I think it's safe to say wasn't entirely successful, um, <laughs> but it was aimed very much at urban liberals disaffected with the so-called nasty party. So all the stuff, hence all the stuff, about greenery, gay marriage, devolution to the regions, tech startups, remaining in the EU, etc., etc., etc. That's Cameron was attempting to talk to those people. Theresa May is much more concerned with the provincials, uh, and she's pitching for their votes. Right? So her talk is all about inequality. It's about cracking down on the gig economy. It's about immigration. It's about grammar schools. It's about hard Brexit. As well, I'll. I'll, I'll Two minutes, that's all. Um, and um, uh, uh, the key thing as well that she's doing is, of course, airbrushing Cameron from, from Tory history. Um, I think it's fair to say that Cameron's project was quite hard for Tory members, Tory party members to take, rather like Blair's project was hard for Labour members to take, and the party's much more, uh, much happier with dear Theresa at the helm. Uh, but quite apart from the direction being congenial to May's temperament, there's a lot of, there will be calculation in this, of course, and she will have calculated, first of all, that there are uh, more provincials than metropolitans. Secondly, that the provincials are much more likely to vote Tory than the metropolitans are. And thirdly, that the metropolitan votes are being fought over by Labour, the Greens, um, the Nationalists, the Lib Dems, whereas uh, 
the provincials have nowhere else to go other than the rapidly imploding UKIP. So I'm sure uh, Theresa sees a nice uh, streak of gold that she'll be mining over the next few years. And I will leave it there. Thank you. Hello. I want to talk about some of these themes slightly under the radar. I hope you'll forgive me. Um, and I want to begin with some remarks made by Charles Moore of The Telegraph uh, two years ago when we had one of the first marvellous episodes of chaos in Westminster when the first appointment, I think it was the first appointment, to the new independent panel to investigate historic child abuse um, was embarrassingly obliged to step down. And one of the things that he said was that it's really important to, because he was defending this first appointment, it's really important, um, the establishment, to have the establishment in these sorts of uh, things because the establishment know how things work. And they know people who know how things work. And they are all people. The only people they know, in fact, are people who know how things work. Now, the reason I love this, beyond reason, I do admit, <laughs> is that it, the whole child abuse thing has exposed the way that they don't. They have no idea. They don't know how to run this tribunal. We're now past, we're now at chairperson four. It's marvellous. And the thing that they don't, that that tells us about the establishment is that they think, and indeed we have been encouraged to think, that they know how the world works. But they don't. They know about their world, but they don't know about the world we all live in. And least of all, can they comprehend how a raggedy bunch of people, survivors of that great, nasty, dirty secret, sexual abuse in childhood, should so ruffle them as to make one after the other of the people charged to sort this out by the establishment collapse. I think this is fascinating because they're one of the, this bunch, this raggedy bunch, survivors of sexual abuse. There are many of us in this room who are either survivors of sexual abuse or who are advocates for people who've survived sexual abuse or who know somebody. But we haven't got it written on our foreheads as one of our identities. So we're out with the, the categories that you've been talking about, actually. And yet these people have felled the establishment on something that happens to be part of our collective, but subordinate, now insubordinate, intelligence. When I was thinking about the, some of the themes of our conversation today, apart from just relishing that, relishing this unruly bunch who've so unsettled the establishment about something that is in their midst, something that they actually do know all about. 
that they've tolerated, indeed incubated in some instances. Okay. When I was thinking about this particular conversation that we're having, I was reminded of uh, Frank Ferredi, who's a sociologist who often appears at events like this and who's written extensively about his fear that the establishment um, and our, establishment, our established institutions um, are being destabilised by what he regards as this unseemly frenzy generated by this unseemly raggedy mob of survivors of the most intimate and secretive oppression. And the implication is, of course, that that's terrible and that what we need to do is to restore the stability and integrity of our institutions. Well, of course, the trouble for Frank Ferredi is, again, we can't. And, and I say this now, having followed themes like this most of my adult life and watched that issue, scandals to do with intimate oppression of one group or another, come and go, rise up to whack society in the face, only to find that we think about it for a year or two and then the troops rally, the, caval the cavalry is brought in and the survivors are routed for you know, another decade and up it comes again bubbling in the most surprising places. And I think this is important because these categories, these sorts of social movements, are often not attended to as exemplars of resistance. Their, their qualities are deemed to kind of belong only to them. We can't really learn anything from them. Well, we can, because if we're thinking about um, uh, how to be anti-establishment then you've got to actually go wherever you find it. Now, as it happens over the last three, three years, this movement has bubbled away, boiling the face of the establishment. Its secrets are not safe any longer. I had another moment of joy yesterday when it turned out that a police officer, Gordon Anglesey, had been um, found guilty of crimes against children, because that's what we're talking about, crimes against children in which the primary witnesses would be people that the establishment regards really as scandalous, raggy, rough, worthless, alcoholics, thieves, mentally ill women. Well, see how effective they've been in ruffling the establishment about the thing that they guard. Actually, they've not touched their economic power, but they do guard their secrets very well. Okay, I want to move from that just to say, let's look then by extension at those movements that have really, very successfully, whacked the establishment. And they share almost nothing in terms of their intrinsic interests, but what they do share is... I'm not yet sure, actually, what they do share. I'm inviting myself and all of us to have a think about them. But let's think who they are and who we need to learn from. Obviously, Occupy. Obviously, Uncut. An incredibly successful movement, actually, in forcing the House of Commons to use its resources to call some of the corporations to account. It's highly unexpected, but highly successful. Hillsborough, another great survivors' movement that confronted power on all sorts of fronts, from News International 
to the police and the criminal justice system and the state in one of its incarnations. Bloody Sunday, geek movements who just burrow away. Nothing unites them, nothing connects them, but they are up to something really interesting. And it's difficult to entirely make sense of what, what animates, what powers the successes of these movements, except this. None of them are sourced within traditional political institutions. None of them. And that partly, I think, helps us understand why these are great movements, often terribly resilient, often made up of poor people, denigrated people, whose only resource is themselves, and who, you know, live and die, who come and go. And part of our collective problem, I assume we all share this collective problem, is that the traditional institutions of electoral and parliamentary politics learn so little from them. Don't connect very imaginatively or creatively with them. Not just because their causes are important. They talk to all of us, from the safety of footballers to the safety of children, da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, but because their ways of doing business tell us something about successful MO in political activism. I want to move now to a slightly different time to say, in the face of all of that, what we also witness is the extraordinary resilience of the establishment. Absolute, that they are still there is gobsmacking and awful. Look at the state of the place that we live in. It's their responsibility. This raggedy place called England. Anyway, there they are. Astounding resilience. But that resilience can't simply be ascribed in a kind of Orwellian way to, oh, well, you know, the establishment's like a family um, with the wrong people in charge. Um, because actually we put another set of people in charge and only to find that some of the values of the establishment appear to become naturalised universal values when, of course, they're not. Um, so I return, in a way, and I've only got a couple of minutes left, um, to the kind of things that, that John aired when he was talking, which is to stress the importance of ideology and culture as part of the process of producing politics that can challenge this extraordinary capacity for survival in our establishment. Because it's clear that the establishment is not trusted, and yet it is the beneficiary of everything, and yet it holds power with remarkable stamina <coughs> and governs our institutions, increasingly invisible institutions, with extraordinary stamina. And one of the things that I think helps us understand this is the way that, and this is not me talking, this is... Um, I'm deriving these ideas from people who are interested in that bit of political theory that's interested in how ideas work and get a grip. When are those moments when ideologies become the unifying, unifying ideology in a society? And we've all witnessed this to some degree over the last few months, over, even though we're very, very bewildered by it. 
um, with Brexit. But I want to touch finally on one bit of it. The way in which the very language that we speak has become, so to say, the language of an establishment. I don't mean the establishment in, in its personhood, but the values which now are virtually, globally, hegemonic. So that care Responsibility, collectivity, peaceful coexistence, all sorts of bits of our language that you would think were virtuous have been morphed into a different set of meanings altogether. So, care is a cost. Anybody in this room, does anybody in this room care for anybody? No, none of, none of you do, clearly. So you're all the personification of neoliberal man. Of course you do. All of you do. All of the women in this room do an awful lot of caring. But it's calculated in our society, according to this lexicon, as a cost to our society. But the work of care, without it, we all die. With or without Google. With or without Twitter. We all die. And yet, it no, longer, it no longer arrives, it no longer exists in the vocabulary of, of politics. Equality, we live in the age of equality. As it happens, we also live in the age of the establishment, the resuscitated establishment. But we live in the age of equality. And yet, since 1980, inequality has grown year by year by year, all the world's institutions sign up to gender equality. And yet nowhere on the planet, nowhere on the planet, except I think in the enclave of Rojava, which is approaching it, um, among the Kurd militias. But nowhere else on the planet does gender equality exist. Nowhere else on the planet is gender equality <laughs> even imaginable. Because I'll be dead. You'll all be dead before gender equality could be achieved, even if it were, as it were, intended by any of the prevailing political ideologies that dominate the world. All of them are predicated on the idea that care is a cost and the welfare state is a cost. Well, without welfare states and without women, because we'll all be dead, um, you know, we don't get to, to reproduce. Anyway, I'll end that little wonder. What I'm trying to suggest by this is that it's really helpful to put things that sometimes look like left field or eccentric or idiosyncratic movements absolutely at the centre of our political imagination because they reveal more than we think they do. Something that's about gender that seems to be about women is actually about men. It's actually about the welfare state. It's actually about the space of politics, whether it will be shrunk or whether politics is that conversation that's about how we all take responsibility, share responsibility for everything. I should end, shouldn't I? Thank you very much for listening. Great. Well, um, thank you all. I'm just going to say a few words 
just to kind of, before we go into the Q&A, I really want to get to that because I do think this is such a great thing to dig into. So I'll give a brief sketch of Media Diversified, what we do, and also, I suppose, just pick up on a few things that, um, unfortunately, my colleague, I think she would have touched on, but she's not here. Um, so yes, just to tell you a bit more about me, um, I'm part of the team. Um, I'm Special Projects Manager at Media Diversified. We are... We don't even have an office, actually. <laughs> I suppose we're riding that new wave of new media. We started in 2013 when Sam started tweeting about, on a hashtag, all white front pages about the lack of diversity in the media. And from there has grown, um, well, it started as a campaign, asking, you know, why in 26, well, then 2013, is the media still so pale and stale and why are so many people's stories not being told? It's not just about the appearance, it's about people's stories being told, people's voices being heard. And from there, we ended up um, forming, well, she founded the organization and we launched a website. We've now grown to have, it's funny because that actually started as a place to post some of the posts that we couldn't quite place because we started <coughs> calling up editors, getting people into the mainstream media and then eventually we realized that our own platform was taking off that there was a lot that wouldn't be published that people really wanted to read and we've now got a million unique views and um, thousands and th upon thousands of Twitter followers but we're also part of I suppose a wider network um, I wouldn't overstate I think social media has its advantages and disadvantages but one of the advantages especially when you're from perhaps a more marginalised group, is that it's a place to meet and talk. Um, there's so much proliferating online in terms of online magazines and just people producing media for themselves. It's a very exciting time. I actually create our political series. Um, we have a political column called White Men Dancing and we have a series called The Other Political Series. That kicked off... Um, the column kicked off during the Brexit campaign because we were aghast at how little was... The focus was so very much on party politics, personalities, and not on the issues that were going to affect people's lives. Um, so, yeah, I guess that brings me quite neatly to... Um, I want to just say a little bit about whether the media is able to report on anti-establishment feeling. Um, sorry, anti-establishment... Yeah, given its links to the establishment... Um, and then I will go on to just talk a little bit about how it can diversify. Um, I would say, looking at just the... One thing that is exciting about this time when we have all these new technologies is that it does give us the chance to build our own. But the fact of the matter is, when it comes to agenda setting in particular and getting your issues in front of the people that can make a difference, which unfortunately, to a certain extent, if you're trying to use the political system, is the establishment, the media is still really important, the traditional media, whether it's the Sunday papers feeding the Radio 4 program, um, Today program in the morning on Monday, through to the broadcast media, it's, it's a chain. And despite the decline of print media, despite the changes and the reverberations in that industry and the disruption caused by social media, the fact is... The people that people at my organization is trying to reach are still listening to Radio 4 
today, which I do love, by the way. I listen as well on the morning. And that agenda is partially driven or very much driven by the weekend papers. You do need to... What we're finding is the limitations is that we still need to, I guess, use the traditional avenues and they feel very much closed off to us. Something that Beatrix said about how the establishment <laughs> rearranges itself, I think, is very, very true. Um, it is the same with institutional racism. It just changes form. Um, and political reporting in particular, if I want to just focus on that because that's what I do mostly, it's very much concerned with horse race politics, entertainment, the personalities. We see it with Trump. We've seen it over here. And I think it's a detriment to the issues. And I think at a time when things are fracturing ever more, um, we desperately need it to do better and to be better. And that's part of what we're working on um, f from where we're standing. But I must say, it is a bigger task than I think we even thought when we started with all our optimism on Twitter. Um, that's not to say that it's not worth doing, but I'm just saying it's difficult. Another thing that um, I would also say is that we're watching the po politics of protest change to a certain extent as well. I've done quite a lot of, I guess, reading, writing, interacting with Black Lives Matter movement. And one thing that I've noticed is that even within the community, there is a sort of a fracture between perhaps older activists who feel that these young upstarts are rude, difficult, um, and you know this idea that you're supposed to have the perfect victim that's media friendly. You know, there's all these ideals, and there's, they have been successful tactics in the past. But the reason why groups like that have arisen is because we need a new <coughs> protest for a new age, and. You may disagree with some of their tactics, but the whole point of protest is it's meant to be in your face. It's meant to be difficult. So, um, yeah, there's, I suppose from where we sit, we do see quite a few things shaking out. In terms of, back to the, I suppose, one aspect I wanted to talk about was framing as well. One thing that is great about the new technologies is that you can put things in front of I guess you can start driving the news cycle, but it's only to an extent because it focuses very much on the sensational. So yeah, the dramatic stuff does tend to get noticed, but in terms of the analysis and digging under the issues, any reporter worth their salt is going to go after those stories. But the difficulties in the media are also to do with the commercial pressures they face. A lot of newsrooms just don't have the journalists good journalists who are able to go out. A lot of them are London-centric, and a lot of these stories are breaking around the country. Um, and when it comes to political reporting in particular, there's a sense that politics is only done in Westminster, which is ridiculous. Um, I have previously, I guess, had back and forth with the Voice newspaper, the leading black newspaper, for instance. At one time, I was friendly with the news editor, and I was talking to her about why is it that they're not interrogating the immigration raids that were happening at the time, um, but instead reproducing all of these government press releases about the outreach that David Cameron was doing in the black community and are saying these two things are connected. It's not, you know, you can't produce one side of the story and not look at the other side, but they were inundated with these press releases. And the way that I, when I had the conversation with the editor, it seemed to me very much that 
they hadn't begun to interrogate even just the nature of the politics that they were reporting. So can the media report on anti-establishment feeling? They could, but it, it's not happening right now. And I think there has to be structural change to make it so. And as we fracture ever more, and as there's more of these, I guess, shifting of tectonic plates, the need for them to do so is even more, not just for um, um, our democracy, but also just so that different communities do get heard and that we can put these issues before the, the people that need to make a difference. In terms of how they can do it, it's actually very simple. We won workshops on this, but it all comes down to hire more people and pay them. Hire writers of color, hire people from different communities, different classes, and you will have to go further to find them. They won't necessarily see the job adverts where you put them. You have to actually make the effort, go out and meet people where they are and let them tell their own stories. And more than that, let them tell more stories. One of the things that we also noticed in the course of our research was so many um, journalists of color drop out. They get into the industry and then they just sort of fall away. And it's because there's no room for advancement. It's also because you get stuck on a particular beat. You don't have the same, I mean, yes, you want to talk about race issues, but at the same time, you might be interested in economics or literature, or, but you're not given those opportunities necessarily. So I suppose those are just a few thoughts I wanted to put out there. I'm sorry, they're not as gathered together as neatly because um, it was a bit on the cuff because my colleague couldn't make it. But I'd love to jump straight into the Q&A. So please do, yeah, ask some questions. And please do make them questions and not statements because I'd love to really get into the discussion. Um, that gentleman there. Uh, Stuart Barr, current MBA student at this university. Um, Professor Norton, you make an excellent comment about the social, food, uh, social media filter bubble being the commercial imperative of Facebook and Twitter, etc. If we accept that the social media filter bubbles uh, create a lack of empathy in society because neither side can appreciate what the other side is seeing in their news feeds, what sort of anti-establishment um, fight back could there be that could, create, that could break down these bubbles and create more empathy in society? I wish I knew. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I think the, the problem with the technology is that it has, it had, um, it does have a, an amazing, empowering kind of uh, uh, potential. Um, I, when, when I'm asked to describe myself at a tech conference, for example, um, I say I'm a recovering utopian. Um, because I was a techno-utopian. I did really think that this technology in the 80s, this is in the 80s, was the most radical thing that human beings had ever invented in a way. Uh, part, perhaps from con contraception, um, and and that it would it would have this. Uh, what what I didn't anticipate and perhaps should have is the extent to which it would be first of all very quickly captured by commercial interests, in the first instance, and secondly, the way in which although it, in principle the, the net enables you you and me and everybody else to talk to anybody else to communicate across the world, it has the potential to make us all cosmopolitans and so on, and actually it turns out that um, we're not like that at all. We, 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 we want to stick in our, in, in, within uh, filter bubbles despite the fact that, that we have, are in digital echo chambers, despite the fact that we can do anything. We, don't, we simply 
don't. And it's, it's right through on Facebook. I mean, for example, I can't remember what the numbers are now, but, but even on Facebook, um, it turns out that, that, uh, the, the, that the vast proportion of Facebook users have actually a very small circle of friends. Uh, no more, even though that potentially they could have far more. So there's something about human nature which, which um, it, when, when it gets to use the technology, reasserts itself. And I think that's a very hard problem to crack. In fact, I, I, so far we've been trying for what, what, five, six thousand years to, to crack the problem of human nature. We haven't got it yet. And the technology simply makes it more visible. That's what I feel. It makes it more, more obvious. I wish I had a little more positive, but I'm not. Uh, traditionally, we've seen people use media strategy to get ahead in politics. And I'm getting a feeling now that uh, not just with Trump, but with the entire Republican ticket and also perhaps in this country as well, People are using politics to get ahead in their media strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you think that's true. If you, you think that that may be part of what's going on now. It's just people simply pushing their own personal brand ahead by using politics. Well, where they're not really interested in becoming part of the establishment. They're interested in simply you know, getting their things out there and getting, getting their brand out there. Well, one of the research projects I work on in Crash studies conspiracy theories, and there's a pretty mature set of conspiracy theories about Trump, of which the, the, the broad trend of them is that he never actually intended to, to become president, he, he, but he sees this as a great opportunity to, to, um, to enable him to, to set up a new kind of television network um, to rival and, in due course, vanquish Fox. So there's an example of... Yeah, I, I, I'm just wondering if you think it might be more widespread. He, he is the obvious example. I think I think it's absolutely uh, certain that that uh, Trump's apparent success in his current strategy, uh, in the sense of, of getting him to the where where he is and getting him to this forty percent stable forty percent uh, support, um, that that's that's not lost on people and and the, in the next generation of political action and the rest of it in places like the United States, you'll find lots of people trying to replicate that because, you know, imitation is a serious, more sincere form of flattery. And I think you see it. Uh, and, and, I mean, the, the most interesting thing about this for me is that um, as far as we know, there's one law about, about media, about communication technologies. And that law says that we always overestimate their short-term impact and we underestimate their long-term impact. In the case of the internet, for example, it, it went mainstream, I guess, with the invention, with the release of the Mosaic browser in 1993. So it's been going for a long time. Um, and and from, from that moment, many of us said, okay, how does, how, what, this is going to change our politics. How? And for, for, until quite recently, it had almost no impact. And then suddenly we're beginning to see what the impact is. And the impact is nothing like we, we originally thought. Because what happened initially is that people like Obama and before that Howard Dean and the others, they used the internet for obvious things like fundraising. But Trump used it for something different. And suddenly we discover that if you have that kind of environment, um, then you're in business. And, and the other thing about Twitter is that Twitter is heaven sent. 140 characters are just enough to launch a conspiracy theory without actually committing to it. Would either of you like to come into mind as well? Yeah, uh, uh, well, yeah uh, um, politics, of course, has been known as uh, sort of 
showbiz for ugly people, and, and that, that's been true for a long time. Um, there's an interesting effect of uh, democracy, which is that it favours the young. Which this isn't quite the effect that you're talking about, but so I, I, I did a book once on, on the history of Tory Conservative Party leadership. Uh, elections. They used, the Tory party used to select their leader. The leader used to just emerge from mysterious discussions. And in those times, the last three were, were um, uh, Anthony Eden, Harold Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume. These are all people in their 60s. They were men. They'd all been to the same school. They'd all been to the same university. Uh, to show uh, their commitment to diversity, they'd been to different colleges at the same university. LAUGHTER uh, They'd all been in Parliament for 30 years. They'd all done the top jobs. Uh, and it was very much this sort of, you know, you got this cliquey set of the establishment. The moment the Tory party started electing its leaders rather than selecting them, their age fell from mid-60s to 50. They became people who were known, but people who had not held the top jobs Yes, so, so the first one was Edward Heath, uh, the second was Margaret Thatcher. They were both about 50. They hadn't been to posh school. They'd been to a grammar school and so on. Uh, and, but the main thing, the point I'm just emphasising is they, they were 50, not 65. Uh, Cameron was in his 30s when he was elected leader of the Tory party. Uh, Ed Miliband uh, was about 12, I think. <laughs> so you have your career. You run the country, right? And then you're booted out and you resign and you're 47 or you're 52. You have 20 years of, of life ahead of you. Yeah. Where, okay, you can stick your nose in the trough, Blair, Blair style. Uh, you, know, you can give the lectures, you can, you can, you can advise. But, but you have 20 years of a career when you've done everything there is to do. You know everything, you know how it works. Um, and the media seems to be an obvious place to, to go. Uh, so I think Trump is probably an outlier in the way that he is simply using this political run to, to, as a boost for his media career. And I, I think if he, if he served two terms and the earth wasn't a boiling cinder in space, at the end of it, you know, he'd probably be at retirement age anyway, um, not grabbing anybody's nether regions. Um, so um, I think Trump's an outlier. I think politics isn't yet just an adjunct to the media industry, but we will see these transformations and these they will happen more and more, I think. Um, my name's Kate Solomon. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the kind of danger of um, overly romanticising kind of anti-establishment politics. Um, the example I'm going to give is, is the Trump supporters. Um, I spent far too much time on the Nate Silver website out of sheer abject terror. Um, that's it's my comfort blanket. But one of the articles I was reading was saying that was um, driving against the dominant narrative, which is a kind of Bruce Springsteen song, Born in America, that the people who support Trump, they are um, overwhelmingly white, they are mostly male, they are victims of neoliberal globalism. Um, they are people who've been made really poor by technology and global trade. Um, and what he did was he was um, doing the maths in a way that I can't do, but he can, on the demographics of mm. their incomes. 
And what he found that looking just at those white Trump voters, that actually they had higher income levels than the white voters in the same state who were going Clinton. So if you were, and I can't remember all the numbers, but like if you're below $50,000 a year, you were far more likely to go Clinton. If you were between 50 and 80, you were more likely to go Trump. So these weren't the poor people. These mm. were not the people who had been, like you said in yeah. Rochester, you know, they weren't the, the Kodak workers. They weren't the victims. Yeah. What they were, when you actually listening to their reasons, were deeply racist, very misogynist. They were white men who were feeling a loss of their self-importance and their status in society. The status you get from being white, the status you get from being male. And, um, and it took me back to something from an ancient history class many, many years ago. It said, actually, most revolutions are right wing. And that I, I do think that there is... Um, looking at the details of who are the people who are joining the anti-establishment revolutions. Like, I've read this article on the Trump one from the late Silver. Um, I don't know nearly enough about what's going on in the, what we call the metropolitan. So and there the are, metropolitan yeah, and there's also been talking about um, the Brexit you know, are as well. Are you the disadvantaged? Are you the poor? Mm. Or are you actually just fighting to retain power and status that you used to have? Beatrix, do you want to lead on? Um, yeah, I, you've reminded me of something, which is that uh, in 1979, when Margaret Thatcher was elected, the presumption was that uh, it was women that got Margaret Thatcher into, um, that won that election. Actually, it wasn't true. It was C2 men. It was working class men with houses, cars, wives, often... Um, skilled, who switched their allegiance uh, to the right because Thatcher appeared to speak to house-owning, car-owning, wife-owning man. Now, the thing that was interesting about that moment, I think, was that the kind of... It was, it was equivalent to now... In, I mean, very, very different, but there are equivalences in that here was uh, a political innovator, Thatcher who uh, magnificently, surgically pioneered the use of certain sorts of concepts that appeared to speak to general grievances and general aspirations. Actually, they were completely particular, and they didn't particularly uh, engage with what was a, a mass experience, but it didn't matter. And one of the reasons it didn't matter was because of the prehistory to that moment. Um, I think that the, uh, a key to the success of Thatcher's burrowing into a portion of the working-class vote was that that working-class vote had been represented by a labour movement that was never particularly egalitarian and indeed um, did in uh, an earlier and very important political experiment, which those of us of a certain age will remember. 1974 to 1976, the social contract, which was the first time that the organised labour movement signed up to a deal with the government that was explicitly egalitarian. And the third phase of the, so of the so social contract was defeated 
by the rise of relatively privileged men within the organised labour movement, tool room workers, skilled men, who didn't actually um, like all of this stuff about equal pay and the erosion of differentials and the erosion of um, hierarchies within the working class as well. So I think you've touched on something very, very important. We can no longer assume that the working class, which, thank God, remains the majority class in Britain, there is hope, um, but you can't assume that it's a homogenous class. And so clearly what's been happening both in the States and certainly here is that certain politicians have been able, quite magically, to... Uh, to quarry and find what becomes the unifying signifier, as it would be called. And in the Brexit um, referendum, race and all sorts of proxies for race were deployed to surgical effect. And, of course, it's tricky because Britain is very embarrassed about um, that problematic. Hence, unbelievably, in my opinion, Emily Thornbury gets sacked because all she's done is put an image on her social media site of a being who is indeed a problem. He is. He's not the cause of all of our problems, but he's a problem. And, um, and so the, the, the things that you've referred to here, which is racism, misogyny, all of them cluster around these characters like Trump. And it doesn't matter that they're coherent. They don't have to be. They don't have to be. What they do, how it... They are romanticised. Of course they are. And they speak to certain griefs and they speak to certain aspirations and in certain moments they do become unified. Can I just say one other thing? I think there is, there is also something else going on in Britain that, about race that I think is very, very frightening and very, very worrying. Um, about two years ago, I was due to appear on Any Questions. And on Thursday, I got a call from the producer on Any Questions who said, oh, I'm really sorry, do you mind stepping down this week? Because this was the week that the news reported that Downing Street had buried statistics on immigration that showed that the government had failed to deliver its cap on immigration. And she said, that's the story this week, so we've got to get UKIP on. Why? Are they the default voice when it comes to anything to do with race and immigration? Clearly, it was felt by the BBC in that moment that they were. And so, you know, not a green person or just a person, any old person. Or an immigrant. <laughs> Never mind an immigrant. <laughs> You're the least... I don't know why I'm looking at you, but oh, you are the least... <laughs> no, I am an immigrant. <laughs> you are the least yes. qualified to speak authoritatively about that matter. So there's something... That the power of these things cannot be underestimated. Where they belong in terms of their class alignments, I think you're right, is much, much more unstable and uneven than we sometimes imagine. John, did you want to...? Yeah, I just say, I, I'm not going to be excluded from this. I'm an immigrant too. Um, <laughs> you Irish person, I, you. Um, no, I just want to say, I think you made a very good point. Um, and and, uh, and it, one of the... Um, I, what it shows, among other things, is that um, the mass media um, has a, the cognitive capability collectively of 
um, perhaps uh, a small monkey. Okay. So it, it, it can't handle anything complex. Okay. Um, uh, so, for, for example, it looks always for s simple explanations. And if you wanted to look at both the explanations for the rise of Trump and the explanations for what happened in Brexit, then you need no, look no further than most of our newspapers, both here and in the United States, and indeed in the media as well. Um, and th that point you made about Trump supporters is absolutely right. Um, th there's a very good piece by my colleague David Runciman in The Guardian ab about a very good analysis of the Brexit thought. I recommend you Google it and, and, and read it. Uh, but th the point is, first of all, media always reach for simple explanations. The second thing is that, and this is why um, I sympathize with you looking at Nate Silver's site, um, because I think thousands and millions of people perhaps in the country are doing that at the moment. But you have to remember that um, our mass media have an interest in this. And the interest is in making sure that we kind of realize that this is the horse race stuff, that it's a close horse race. Trump might get elected. He might. He might. So you, and actually, I think, you know, it's fantasy. And it's, been, it's probably been geared up just to, to keep us buying the papers or, or keep us paying attention or whatever. So you have to... And the third thing is that in all of this, you have a pervasive kind of golden age delusion that, for example, American politics has been dirty for a long time. It's been interestingly dirty at the moment. But if you know anything about the history of American politics, you know, go, go back to, to, to Brian and, and, and all, those other, all those other elections. Um, so... You know, forget it. Journalism was never any was never better than it is now. It was never worse than it is now. It's been the same. It's been as bad as this for since there's been journalism and so on. So you have to have a kind of a skeptical view about this stuff. And one of the things I object to at the moment is that we don't have it. Could you add one, one, one final point? Uh, speaking as my, my dad was an immigrant. So. Yeah, you, no, again, uh, I, I agree with everyone. You made a very good point there that, that we do have to... I mean, I don't tend to romanticise anti-establishment very much at all, actually, as a matter of fact. Uh, but it's also true that not only should we be looking at anti-establishment movements and seeing what makes them tick and following the power and following the money and all that stuff, but we can do the same with establishments too. And the questions to ask about an establishment would be, well, is it responsive to pressure from outside? However exclusionary it is... Does it feel the pressure and act? Is it how easy, how porous is it? Can you get into it? I mean, I went to an inner city comp. Does that mean I'm out forthwith? Or could I join this group somehow? So, you know, these are important questions to ask about the establishment as well as the anti establishment <laughs> forces, uh, which is just to extend your point. You know, you know. Think it's about how do you how do you join and how do you make the connections? And so my question also probably follows from some research, which was saying that if you traced how broadband rolled out across the states, the polarisation of views absolutely followed that. And and it seems to me that it, what happened here over Brexit is immensely similar to what we see in the states. And a lot of us then couldn't believe that what would happen would happen, because it was because it felt very clear that a lot of what we were told um, in terms of pro-Brexit was untrue, as in vote for it and the way morning going to the health service. So you thought people must be able to see through that. But that, but actually there was a different set of views and thoughts. And it's our disconnect. And I think that Facebook and Twitter feed into that because 
are the way media is presented to us and those filters means we think that we're more, part, more people feel like we do than might be true. So my question is that link between both the kind of major polit political movements and personally, how you think we might tackle that um, moving forward? It's very fashionable to talk in terms of data and big data and broad data and stuff. And, and as a computer scientist, I'm sort of complicit in this to some degree. But um, that does create uh, a different... People are described by data with a different, le different levels of richness because some people appear in the data a lot because they do a lot of things online and they do a lot of things on social media. And some people don't appear in the data very much at all and they're kind of invisible. Partly as... Uh, Beatrix's point was that uh, some of these organisations don't show up on the radar, uh, but also some people simply aren't connected to the web at all. They don't have, I don't have a smartphone, actually. refuse to have a phone that's cleverer than I am. Um, <laughs> but but people, don't, uh, people who don't have smartphones, we simply have far less data about what they do. Uh, and if decisions are made on the basis of big data, you know, chunk the machine learning program on top of it, it does a bit churning out, out comes the answers and we just do what it says, what it says. Uh, then we will miss a huge range of human experience. And I think there's a real place in politics for the human touch, face-to-face -to -face discussions, that kind of thing. You know, it doesn't matter how wide your bandwidth are, there's nothing wider than two people talking and the amount of information passing is immense. more terrible or abusive than it ever was and because without it you can't galvanize um, and of course both sides are entirely guilty of it and then the opposite is true then no the world has never been better and the rest of it to what extent do you see people actively pursuing that and how do I suppose I'm less surprised with the establishment doing that and there wouldn't be the establishment otherwise but the movements that stand for truth to me seem to do as much of that truth bending if not more, to get the point across that there is a sense of crisis and may feel that ends justify me the means, to what end do you think that is the case or is just an impression and the world of post-truth politics doesn't really exist? I think it's... it's, sorry, it's uh, first of all, it's kind of back to, back to Plato and shadows on, on the cave. Um, uh, it, d democracy, strangely enough, um, despite the appearance of what happened to Britain in the day after Brexit, are, are very stable and resilient um, societies, um, broadly speaking, over a longish period of time. Um, but the thing that characterizes them is they're always in a state of crisis. And that's the first thing. Second thing is I think it's really worth, somebody brought it up, but I think it might have been you, is that um, you, you have to distinguish between um, scandals and crises. Okay, scandals happen all the time in democracies. Um, crises happen rarely. Um, the difference is that w there's a scandal, there's a huge fuss, and, and there's a lot of talk, and there's hot air, and so on and so forth, but nothing much happens. So, uh, but crisis are really serious. And so a big question always to ask is, is this particular thing a crisis or a scandal? When, when the phone hacking stuff broke, for example, I was, as somebody who's written a newspaper column since 1982, um, I thought, this, this is it. 
this is, this, is, this is the crisis. And I was wrong. It turned out just to be a scandal because nothing has changed. Actually, nothing has changed at all. Um, the, the big question about Edward Snowden was, is that a crisis or not? We still don't know, really. Um, but you know what I mean? But, but the point is that most of the time, our, in democracies, it seems that our perceptions of things are constantly slightly overheated, um, uh, partly because we have free media, and, and partly because, uh, for some reason, there seems to be an existential quality of, of democracy. They worry about every goddamn thing. Um, and they, also, they always, always think that the, what's happening now is the worst thing that ever happened. I mean, you, you know, Trump is, of course, bizarre. Trump is bizarre, of course. But actually, you know, um, th think of uh, some of the former American presidents, Andrew Jackson, for example. Or, you know, all that stuff. Um, just keeping an eye yeah. on the time, because I know we need to wrap up and people need to get to the next session. Mm -hmm. There was a gentleman in grey, if you just ask your question really quickly. <laughs> the, the idea that, that an organization as diverse and chaotic as this is controlled by anything <laughs> is a kind of really interesting. Um, but, but, but I recommend a visit to the old schools sometime if you really want to see what it's like. Yes, well, that's why I asked. I mean, the, 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 there's this, I think there's a, there's a meme that, that, that according to Eric the theory of aeronautics, a bumblebee cannot fly. And the bumblebee, in fact, ignores the theory and, and visibly flies. Um, if you look at Cambridge University, you would think this outfit cannot possibly uh, uh, work. It has 31 sovereign states called colleges, and it has a, 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 a relatively feeble administration, so central, which is the commission, as it were. Um, and yet, it's been going for 800 years. So it maybe it's like democracy. <laughs> Uh, that it ought not to work, and, and, it, and for some reason that nobody understands, it still does. Um, I think that's a good note on which to end. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for our lovely time.